This morning, we have a great opportunity to consider the greatest question ever asked. It's not the question on your bulletin, because that question on your bulletin is the one that uh, is, is known across the world. It really has to kind of get some scrutiny uh, put to it. Who's a good Samaritan? We're going to look at the greatest question ever, and it's going to cause us to ask a question as well. The greatest question ever is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The other question that comes up in this passage is, who's a good Samaritan? And the way you personalize that is you say, am I a good Samaritan? And maybe there's an opportunity right now as you've got your notes and you're just thinking about the word of God, we're going to read this passage. Maybe just scratch down and make your little self a note in the top right-hand corner. One word answer, are you a good Samaritan? Yes or no? Maybe for husbands and wives, maybe one of you split the difference and one say yes and the other say no and you know we'll reconcile that out later. But I want you to think about that question. That's a good question to have before us this morning. Am I a good Samaritan? Do I know what it takes to inherit eternal life? So we're looking at Luke chapter 10. And we're going to read from verses 25 through 37. So read this portion of scripture with me. The word of God says this. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The man said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Surely this is not the first time that you've heard this parable. To the contrary, this is very familiar territory for you. At first, this is a parable that starts with a question. The question is about eternal life. The chances are, though, as you see it move into this call to a good Samaritan, you're very familiar with this term, good Samaritan. Culturally, this is a well-known idiom. These words, good Samaritan, have been brought together to mean an extraordinary act of kindness, unusual help, someone who goes above and beyond social norms and expectations of behavior. It's regarded as a, a compliment for noble service, a special action. So widespread is this idiom that we have an Arroyo Grande Good Samaritan warming shelter. You can go to Los Angeles and you can find the Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. 
There's even a group of folks that love to RV and, and drive and travel and have journeys. And these journeymen who drive in their RVs, they're, they're from the Good Sam's Club. The tagline for your insurance company down the road or that has that radio jingle, they want you to know that they, they'd like to re- respond to your disaster like a good neighbor. They'll be there. And if you watch the local news and the national news, inevitably, once a week or so, it'll come up that somebody has done something really wonderful for society, helped somebody out in a powerful way. And without question, that the term is used for that person. They're a good Samaritan. We have charitable organizations that put on their websites things like this. They, they comment on Luke 10 and they say, the story of the good Samaritan gives a clear picture of God's desire for us to help those in desperate need wherever we find them. Is that right? Is that what the story is about? Is the story of a good Samaritan a picture of helping? Is that what the story was created for? Was Jesus aiming to tell the story to make more helpers to help? Or consider this. There's, I don't know if you know this, but there's Good Samaritan Awards that are passed out quarterly. There's a website for this. And from the website, you can read the mission statement. And the mission statement says this. Pay attention. It says this. Our objective is very simple. We seek to shift publicity away from the negative news that sours the spirit and teaches people about the worst among us in favor of positive news capable of uplifting the spirit and inspiring the best in all of us. How does that hit you? Does that sound right? You know, if the Bible were an airplane, you'd have to call that rendition of Luke 10 hijacking. They're hijacking the text. And they're taking it to their own worldview and their desired interpretation. You need to be asking the question, what did the author mean when he spoke? What did the writers of the text mean when they were trying to communicate this and advance this understanding forward to us. You know, in seminary, there's a joke that we we tell with each other as we're busy, time is short, time with family is limited. So you look to your brother and he says, I got to go do this. And you say, well, whatever you do, do it quickly. And the brother laughs. It's totally biblical because Jesus said those words. But does context matter? And would it help you to understand that when we make this joke with each other, that those are the words that Jesus said to Judas when he went to betray him? So is that something that you want to share with your brother? Makes a good joke though, doesn't it? And the joke always helps to remind us to extract the right meaning from the text. Extract the meaning of the author in its context. That's what we're after. But this is the course of the world, right? The course of the world, the course of humanity is to take what's right and make it become wrong. To make love something that's received as opposed to something that's given. To make gender a choice of men as opposed to that which is assigned by God. To take marriage and make it flexible as opposed to perfectly static and designed by God to be between one man and one woman. And worst of all, our society takes and messes with and twists up and distorts salvation. Salvation, making it user-friendly and non-judgmental, a social gospel that's inclusive and tolerant of all kinds of sin and not the product of the wisdom of God or the will of the Son of God. Salvation is the issue. Eternal life was the question. So here's what we need to do. We need to consider eternal life 
and salvation. We need to get past culture and its hijacking and rebranding of this Good Samaritan story because our text is not about anyone becoming a social helper. Our text this morning is focused on salvation and on eternal life. And our text is going to reveal this to us as we follow along with three questions that spotlight the elite limits of eternal life. Because when you're speaking about eternal things, there is an elite set of standards, elite limits that show you and point you the way to eternal life. So we're going to look at these three questions and we're going to consider how they point toward authorial intent, the intent of the author to the mind of Jesus as he is speaking to this lawyer. We're jumping into the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at it in chapter 10. We find ourselves in a context. Let's explore that context and understand it for a moment. This context that we find ourselves in is chapter 9 and 10, where Jesus is looking to make true disciples. He wants true disciples, people that won't buckle under the pressure, people that won't fall out or flake out, or pretenders that have been... Fan, uh, bandwagon fanboys that have come along. He wants them to flee and he wants the true to stay. He sends out his disciples to preach the kingdom. And in chapter 10, you can see that he sent out 70 men. Some of your versions say 72. And they went out to preach the kingdom. They come back and they report to Christ in verse 17. And they create an awesome fireworks ministry moment with Jesus. And they are all greatly rejoicing together, rejoicing. At this most powerful moment, this joy is overflowing from Christ. This is in the verses just before the ones we just read. You're looking at verses 20 and 21 and 22 of chapter 10. And in that passage, we saw in verse 20, the greatest joy of a true disciple, knowing that your name is written in heaven. And then we saw Jesus' greatest joy, his greatest earthly joy came in verses 10, uh, 10, 21 and 22. What was his greatest joy? Remember, his greatest joy is the salvation of men, specifically knowing that it's recorded in heaven from verse 20, but knowing that salvation is first, the wisdom of the father, second, the will of the son, and third, the work of the spirit. The salvation of men sends Jesus into great rejoicing, the greatest of his earthly ministry. So the context that we're dealing with as we approach this parable of the Good Samaritan is a context about salvation and Christ's power to affect salvation in men. I'm going to use a simple outline this morning. We're going to look at these three questions that show up in the text. That's real simple. The good, the bad, and the convicting. So we're going to look at question number one, the good question. Let's look at question one. Verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The ESV holds a little bit better translation because it includes the word behold right there after and. And behold is a little particle of speech that helps understand that we're dealing with a context. Out of the one scene comes the next scene. And what what was that scene before? Well, we just mentioned it was a conversation about salvation. And this point is critical. It's crucial to the context. It becomes an opportunity for Luke to prove the point made by Jesus in 10.22. And if you see that text there, 10.22, what is the major prerequisite of salvation? The major prerequisite of salvation is that Christ wills to reveal salvation to you. So as Jesus is teaching, a lawyer stands up to ask a question. 
And this lawyer, he's a lawyer with respect to issues concerning the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch, all of its rules and regulations about religious practices and the proper worship of God. Another name for this man would be a scribe. And the text says that the scribe, the lawyer, wanted to put Christ to the test. It's very easy to read into this comment an ulterior motive, right? He had an ulterior motive. But it's just as easy to give him the benefit of the doubt and believe that he just wanted confirmation of a pretty basic issue. How do you make yourself right with God? It's, it's been asked by many before. It was an all-important issue to Jews. Hanging on their shoulders was the ever-present weight of sin. Is a theme in the Old Testament. It, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The fall of man. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. From Romans, we understand this. David says in Psalm 143.2, for, for in your sight, no man living is righteous. The Lord said through Jeremiah in chapter 2, verse 22, although you wash yourself with much lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is ever before me. And Job says, asking the question rightly again, he says, but how can a man be in the right before God? Brother Don did a great thing in, in presenting that to us this morning in our scripture reading. The lawyer certainly knows of his guilt and his sin and his shame because God has put eternity into the hearts of all men. We understand that our soul is eternal, will live forever. And the greatest question that we have to answer with or contend with as we go through our whole life is not knowing when we'll die and not knowing when you'll die should put a great burden on you to figure out when I die. It's not, it's, it's, it's a matter of time. You will die. It's a certainty. When you die, where will you go? To hell, which is a reality, or to eternal heaven with God forever, which is eternal bliss and joy. Further, this man, he knows that corporate salvation is not an option. That each one must stand before God to account for his own sins. His Jewish blood and heritage, it has no effect at saving him. So here comes the question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is not only the good question. This is the greatest question. This is the greatest question. We would all love it if family members, brothers, sisters, if children, if neighbors... If, if people that we work with, employees or employers, would ask us this question, just come and ask, please. We're begging you. Ask this one. This is, this is the big softball pitched up in the air. I want this question. It's the question of eternal life. This question proves the absurdity of the Pope last week. I'm not sure if you're paying attention, but last week, uh, according to a, a news article where he was talking with a reporter, he denied the existence of hell. This question directly contends with the existence of hell, with the knowledge of hell, the certainty of hell, and with a, a, a complete understanding that in opposition to hell, there is a chance to enjoy peace and perfection forever with God. Eternal life is the focus, and this lawyer knows it. Recognition of something beyond the physical, material world. Recognition of the spiritual, the immaterial. The disposition of the soul that is inside of you, who you actually are. So this is the greatest question. And I would ask you to note also that it is a personal question. The lawyer wants to know how I can inherit eternal life. This makes for a personal evangelistic session 
between a lost man and the God man face to face. It doesn't get any better than this. The right question, the right time, the right man. This is that softball being pitched up so high. And Christ is looking at it. But you know what he does first? He doesn't take the heavy swing at it. I think that he bunts at this one. He kind of bunts to put himself on base. Look at this. Jesus, he wants to establish what this lawyer already knows. What this lawyer already knows. What do you already know about eternal life? You know something. Eternity, eternal life, is there's something already on you that's burning about it. You already know something. What do you know? Jesus wants to find that out. So he asked two questions. He said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Notice that first Jesus goes to the law. This is so important in our context, in a society, in the rest of your life, you're going to watch people continually try to degrade Scripture. And you need to point to a text like this, where, and they happen over and over and over again, where Christ points to the Old Testament and hangs his hat and hangs his ministry on the Scriptures. And he says, he goes to the law and he says that he loves Moses and he affirms what he's written, let alone all the other prophets, and he expects the man to know what it says by asking him, how does it read to you? Which is to say, how do you recite it? Because in this day and age, they did recite it. They recited it daily. The scribes and the Pharisees had made this into a twice daily required recitation. They call it the Shema, which is just the first word of Hebrew in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You know this one. It sounds like this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If you add to Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19.18, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you get this whole, this whole recitation that they put together. So not surprisingly, this lawyer knows the exactly right answer. And he says it without delay. In verse 27, he said, And you, sh- you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a flawless recitation. Good job. You've got the words right. Not only are these the right words, they convey exactly the right idea, the righteousness that God requires, the righteousness which yields eternal life. He's answered his own question. Christ gave two questions, and now the man has his own question right in front of him, and Jesus affirms what he said. He gives him a total affirmation. He says to him in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's so easy. It's right there. You got it. Everyone should just pack up and head home at this point. You know what it takes. Go do it. Make it happen. No one's taking me up on it. You're all still sitting here. Why? He's quoting from Leviticus 18.5. Jesus totally affirms the answer. This matches the law of God and God's righteousness. And now, just do it. Do it. Get it done. We've got a problem though, don't we? If the law is summarized, it boils down into these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus spoke the same words in Mark 12. The answer is perfect. Because what the answer suggests is this. 
It says that first, my relationship vertically with God is broken, and I need to restore that first. And if I have that vertical relationship stored, then I can restore horizontal relationships because that restoring horizontal relationships would be well-pleasing to the one that I most offended first. I offended God first. You know, love here in, in, this, in the Shema, love here in, in Deuteronomy and in, and in the recitation here, love is in the present tense. This is an ongoing and continual love. It doesn't expire. It doesn't run out. It doesn't run weary when the going gets hard. It doesn't fail at 2 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't fail after a long day at work. This love is continual. This continual ongoing love is not only expected of God that you would be able to put out perfect love to God continually. It's expected that you love men this same way. That when you look out horizontally that you love men the same way that you love God at the same pace, at the same rate that you love God There's a desire that this love matches exactly the righteousness of God in quality, quantity, duration, and intensity. So to answer the lawyer's question, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. This should have been the end of the story. The story should have stopped right there and had a different ending to it. There should have been a recognition of failure on the lawyer's heart. He could have come clean at this point in time and said, how? How do I do that? I know that I recite this twice every day, but fill me in, man, because I can't get this right. I don't have continually perfect love toward God, let alone love toward other men. I don't. I don't do this. Jesus, I fail on both points. The requirement of God has always been perfection. When was God ever less than holy? When was God ever less than perfect? This, this standard of perfection will not depart. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, yet the human condition is warped by sin, loaded with failure. And this fact creates great tension in the hearts of men and women, and rightly so. This tension is what forced this question out of this man's mouth. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The demand that this, this tension creates this, this the, the demand creates this tension in our hearts, and yet never the demand of righteousness will change. It will never go away. The, the opportunity to, to give God perfection, the demand, the requirement to give God perfection, it will never go away. So here's the lawyer. He's caught in the dilemma of all times. How can you be perfect when you are never perfect? That's a great question. How can you be perfect when you are never perfect? Where does a finite human mind go when the going gets tough? He had an opportunity, this lawyer. He had an opportunity right now as the going is getting tough and Jesus puts this at him. He had an opportunity to consider his lacking, his insufficiency, his inability to please God at all. But the human mind doesn't do that, does it? The human mind goes to Personal justification. Personal justification. You look to justify yourself. You you not only do this with God, you do this with men. You do this with your brother. You do this with your sister. You do this with your wife. You do this with your husband. You look to personally justify your behavior. You want an out. You want an escape. And the lawyer wants to justify himself on his own terms. So we look at verse 29. And we go to question number two. 
which is the bad question. We saw the good question. We go to the bad question. We'll end on the convicting question. But we're looking at the bad question in verse 29. Look at what it says here about this man. It says, But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You've heard it said in elementary school that there are no bad questions. I refute that. <laughs> I don't think that's the case at all. I think that's the that's a result of rampant liberalism. It is the case that there are bad questions, and this is a bad question. And for a biblical counselor, when you hear someone ask something like this or say something like this, it begs for inspection. It begs to be combed over and mulled over and dove into. We need to dive into this. Can you feel the, the ripe wickedness of the human heart in that question? It's just saturated and it's flowing out of it. Can you see it? From these five words, this question, and who is my neighbor, we need to consider six insights into the motive of this question. I want to look at these six insights into the motive of this question because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the lawyer has revealed his heart in this question. So the first insight is this. This question totally ignores the first half of the previous answer. Totally ignores it. Just blew right past it. The lawyer assumes that he already demonstrates flawless love to God. He has no problem with that. He loves God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Wow. What a boastful position and a prideful assumption. Just blew right past it. Second insight. Number two, the question desires to focus on the minor issue, the secondary issue, and not the major issue, the love of God. This is easily accomplished when filled with self-righteousness. And the second commandment might look a little squishy. There's some wiggle room in there in the wording that makes it desirable to attack it. This insight number three would be this. This question has an obvious undercurrent, doesn't it? Isn't there an obvious undercurrent in it? What is that undercurrent? Well, it's this. There are people whom the lawyer does not love. There are people whom the lawyer does not... In fact, there are people whom the lawyer hates. He's already a hater by asking the question. And if Jesus would be so kind as to tell him who specifically neighbors are, then it is highly likely in his mind that he will have fulfilled all the law and he will stand justified before God on his terms, being able to keep his hatred of other men. Insight number four, this question then from the outset is an admission of failure with regard to the second commandment. It's a failure. The question admits failure. Before Jesus even begins to answer, the man is already condemned because hatred is already present in his heart. Insight number five, this question attempts to focus externally on others, not internally on self. There's no desire to ask how to love, rather only a qualification about who to love. Insight number six, this question proves the depravity and wicked deception of the human heart. The lawyer thought that clarification of one word would prove him justified before God. Are you serious? If we can just get a qualification on a singular word, we can get justification and righteousness in the sight of God. But there he is thinking, 
I'm righteous if I can get you to affirm my definition of neighbor. To justify is, is to vindicate, is to declare righteous. And the man wanted to declare himself to be righteous. That, friends, is a wicked heart. The one that wants to declare itself righteous. The wicked heart is not his problem only because all of these insights, all of those six insights, guess what? You and I do every one of those things. That's as much a part of your life yesterday and today as it was of the lawyer when he asked the question. But it's not your problem alone. It's not the lawyer's problem alone. It's not my problem alone. It's the, it's the nation of Israel's problem. It's the problem of all of mankind. The nation of Israel had itself grown self-righteous and wicked. It's really no surprise that the man wants neighbor qualified because the Jews had been trained and raised to believe that there are those people whom should be hated. You don't have to see, you don't have to go very far in your Bibles to see this. Just flip back a page to Luke 9:52. Jesus had to rebuke James and John for this very same kind of thinking. Racial prejudicial, unrighteous, and judgmental hearts. Jesus already had to rebuke James and John for this. Read with me from verse 952. This is when Jesus is trying to make disciples and he's sending out messengers. It's right in between the sending out of the 70 and the sending out of the 12 in chapter 9, verses 1 and following. Jesus sends out messengers in 952 and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Did you catch that? Command fire from heaven to come down and consume them? You want Hiroshima to drop on the Samaritans? You want the atomic bomb to drop on the Samaritans? He's saying, nuke them, Jesus. That's hatred, isn't it? And what people group are we looking at again? Oh, that's right. The Samaritans. This group, so easy to hate. So easy to hate. All Jews hated Samaritans because they're half-breeds. They intermarried with Gentiles and are unpure. In fact, in the 400 years between the end of the revelation of the Old Testament scripture and Christ's coming, in that intertestamental period and right before, they were hated viciously because they tried to block Ezra and Nehemiah from building the temple, from rebuilding the temple. They set up their own religion centered on Mount Gerizim and they took the first five books of the law and they said, this is the right scripture. And is likely, highly likely, Give you, uh, please go with me on that. There's no question that this lawyer hated the Samaritans just like James and John did. It's right here in his question. Look at 1029. Who is my neighbor? Jesus catches the hatred. Who is my neighbor? Tell me. Justify me. Who is my neighbor? Confirm for me that my neighbor doesn't include those Samaritans over the hill yonder. Confirm for me that my, my hatred of the wicked and the poor is right. Confirm for me, Jesus. Jesus catches this desire for justification and his desire for eternal life, looking at his heart condition found in that comment, in that question, this bad question. 
this unrepentant, pride-filled man was given one more chance because Jesus is merciful. He's perfectly merciful. He's loving. You know, he didn't swing hard at the softball pitch on the good question. He asked a couple of questions, confirmed what the answer was in the man's heart. But the lawyer pitches up this one as well. He pitches this one high into the sky, this question, and Jesus Jesus swings for the heart of this man when he hits this question. He swings for the heart, and he swings hard. He does this through a parable, through a short story. Jesus is, is preparing an incredibly personal evangelistic story. That's what this is, a personal evangelistic story to challenge the lawyer's self-righteousness and to show him who he is and maybe more importantly, show him who he is not. The man still doesn't recognize his failures. He wants to be justified and Jesus is saying to him, you've got it all wrong. Let me show you who you are not. That's what this parable is about. But remember, parables are meant as a judgment. It's part of the hiding that God does of spiritual truth. You see that in Luke 10, 21, just those few previous verses. But they're perfectly, the parables are perfectly understood by those to whom Jesus has revealed spiritual truths. You see that in verse 10, 22 of Luke. But all parables are judgments. It's a judgment of God to hide things from the wicked, from the lawyers, from the Pharisees. So we read in Luke 10, 30, Jesus replied, and he said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. This journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is a 17-mile journey. You start in, Jer- or you start in Jerusalem, in, in the hill country, and you have to, you're up at an elevation of about 3,000 feet. That, that elevation at 3,000 feet changes radically when you go only those 17 miles east toward, Jer- or ch- toward Jericho and you drop down into the Jordan Rift Valley and you descend 900 feet below sea level. This is 4,000-foot elevation in a 17-mile journey. It was a dangerous road. This, this way, this path is called the Ascent of Adubim. Adumim means blood. This was the trail of blood. It was common for robbers to hide in the clefts of the rocks that lined the way. And in this story, the robbers attack the man. This is not a surprise. And they beat and they pummel him and he's stripped and left for dead on the side of the road. That's a pretty bad day. That's a pretty bad day. But there comes a thread of hope as we read on, right? Look at the thread of hope. Verse 31, and by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Hope. And when he saw him, oh, he did see him. Hope. He passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And for a moment with each of these men, you have this hope and you want to hold your breath. And you think that there might be a rescue because these men, surely, these righteous men will stop to help this wounded traveler. Surely the one who knows the passage that Brother Don read for us earlier from Micah 6.8, to do kindness and to do justice and to walk humbly with your God, surely that guy will walk over after walking humbly with God and help this beaten man. Surely these righteous men, these 
priests and Levites would have read Exodus 23, 4, and 5, where it's told of these Israelites that they are to save the donkey of their enemy. And if you have to save the donkey of your enemy and return it to him, how much more the man himself? But hope is destroyed when these righteous men pass on by. This would cause the lawyer a great deal of discomfort because he's cut from the same cloth as the priest and the Levite. These are his boys. And these boys of his are not the heroes of this story, but rather the villains of this story. They're on the same order of the robbers and thieves that beat the man. This is personal evangelism. He's going right at him. This is taking this lawyer right to his heart. It gets more personal when Jesus introduces the next character, who's the enemy of the lawyer. We read in Luke 10:33, but a Samaritan was on a journey and came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. What a great contrast. What, what a powerful illustration to use your enemy and make him the good guy? Wow. The Samaritan is the hero. The character selection is so important, so fundamental. Jesus wants to bury this message deep into this lawyer's heart. And the message is this. You're not like this man. You don't love your brother. In fact, you hate Samaritans. Jesus has aligned the Samaritan with compassion, lavish love, care of an enemy. This is directly contrasted with the lawyer's type of people, the priests and the Levites, the Pharisees. And consider the care that's being offered here. Look at the lengths and the extents of the care offered by the Samaritan for this hurt stranger. You know, it's likely that this, this stranger, this man, is a Jewish man. So this is the Samaritan's enemy. And if the Jewish man had the option, he might refuse the care of the Samaritan. But he's desperate. And the Samaritan, besides the Samaritan, he's unconcerned with stereotypes and hostilities. He knows what is right. He knows what is just. He knows what is in keeping with the holy and righteous standard of God. And that is to lavish care on this man. But Jesus has more to say about the extent of the lavishing of care. Look at the next verse. It says this, On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. I want you to consider how high a standard of neighborliness Jesus is setting here. How high is the standard? The text says on the next day, which indicates that the man stayed through the night with this hurt and traveling stranger. He gave money, two denarii. You know, there's a stone tablet that's been found that dates back to around the first century. And it indicates to us that the going rate for a room night at this time would have been one thirty-second of a denarii. So he's effectively paid for two months worth of room and board at this inn for a total stranger. You know, if, if this is a stranger that comes through AG, who's going to whip out 9000 bucks and go pay the Holiday Inn? Finally, take note of the, the mention that he said he will return to square up all the debts. 
Not only has he tasked the innkeeper with care and given him basically a blank check, he says, I'll come back and anything that's different, if the blank, the, the blank check, spend it. Spend what you need to take care of this man. Treat him as if he were me. I'm coming back with more money. I will come back through here later. He's going to make time to come back to this place and settle all the debts to make sure that the beaten man gets the care that he needs. So the question is this. Raise your hand. Who of you loves like this? Which of us loves like this? Who makes this kind of sacrifice? The loss of money, the loss of time, the loss of revenue. Certainly he was a businessman. He had someplace to go. He had, he had people to see. He had things to do. He had kids sporting events to take care of. He had somewhere to go. The amount of love, the amount of care, the amount of service to another human being. The answer is nobody. Nobody loves like this. Nobody loves like this Samaritan. For that one person that might be here saying in their heart, wait, Oliver, wait. There was that time when I loved like that. Brother, no, there wasn't. You haven't loved like this. You've never loved in this fashion. You, you don't spend time with your enemies. You certainly don't lavish your enemies with your care and love and resources and effort. You barely do this for your friends and family in little fits and spurts. It's more likely that the lavishing of love and care and money that you do goes toward your own care. By the way, this good Samaritan, his ministry, this lavishing of love, which good Samaritan ministry in our community today lavishes love like this? Does the good Samaritan hospital in L.A.? Does the good Samaritan shelter here in Arroyo Grande? Does the giving of the Operation Christmas Child, do we do with Samaritan's Purse? Does that lavish love like this? Is that the same? Or is there a difference? This is lavished love. And that's Jesus' point. He's saying to this man, here is a standard of conduct that you can never attain to. These are the elite limits of eternal life. Limits to which you will never achieve. It's out of your league. It's out of this world standard. Because it's the standard of righteous perfection continually. It's a standard of righteous perfection continually. Having placed this story in the, mind, in the man's mind, Jesus asked the final question for us to follow through with this story. Question number three, verse 36. The convicting question. Verse 36 says this, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? We need to ask this question. What is Jesus doing with this question? What angle? What direction? We need to examine this question. Does it match the lawyer's question? Does it match the, the answer that the lawyer wanted? Who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus comes back with this question? Not at all. Consider the lawyer's question again. Who is my neighbor? This question focused on the external. It wants to know about someone else. It wants to know about groups of other people. The lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? It wants a profile. It wants a qualification. Is it the people with tattoos? The people with this particular eye color? This particular color of skin? This religion? Tell me, Jesus, who? And Jesus blew right past that self-serving question. Blew right past that selfish question. How did Jesus change the question? It's so important that you see this. He changed the question. He radically changed the question. The lawyer wants an external profile of who qualifies for love. And Jesus gives an internal profile of a loving heart. The lawyer wants his hatred accepted. And Jesus demands love and righteousness that is abounding. Jesus changes the question from who is to am I? From who is to how do I? From being about everybody out there to being about who am I in here? This is a hurtful question to the lawyer. This is a moment in his life that he'll never forget. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba. You remember this story. David sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet told David a story. And at the end of the story, the punchline was, you are the man. Do you remember that story? You are the man. So Christ here is saying to the lawyer, you are not the man. On the surface, the answer to the question is obvious. Clearly, the Samaritan proved to be the neighbor. And the lawyer confirms the same, answering Jesus' question. And I'm sure that when he answered Jesus' question here, he had to swallow hard. He didn't want to say these words. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And in so answering Jesus' question, the lawyer convicted himself, became an instant hypocrite. The one who knows the right answer, but his practice does not match the truth. His question was merciless, this question, who is my neighbor? It seeks for the opportunity to be unmerciful. But now, at the end of Jesus' parable, the lawyer is confronted with true mercy, true justice, true love, and what it means to truly be a neighbor. He must be drowning in guilt and shame at this moment where he set out to be justified by Jesus. He must be stunned at how unjustified Jesus just made him feel. Jesus' final words to the lawyer are devastating. Go and do likewise. Make this manner of life your manner of life. Make your own heart do these things. Make your heart love like this always. Make your heart serve like this always. Not only for the people that you love and that you care for, but for your enemy as well. These are the elite limits of eternal life. You want eternal life? You meet this standard. This is a dagger going into this man's heart of stone. How is this self-righteous, pride-filled man ever going to offer such compassion to anyone, let alone his enemies? He can't. He, he never will. Remember that Jesus said that the Father has hidden spiritual truths from the wise and intelligent. This man considers him the wise and intelligent. You see that in Luke 10, 21. And furthermore, Jesus has to will that spiritual truth be revealed to any man. 
This lawyer is the wise and intelligent, and spiritual truth has been hidden from him. God is powerful to hide spiritual truth. If the son had revealed spiritual truth in his heart, what would it look like? What shape would it take? What would come next? What would come out of the man? What should Jesus' question produce in the lawyer's heart? Humility. It should produce humility. It should produce a recognition that we are not elite, that we can't meet these elite limits. We recognize a need for assistance. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 18, verse 9. I want to show this to you. These truths should produce so much internal pain and agony that they cause you to cry out to God and to plead with Him for mercy and grace for your own life. This is the cry of the tax man, and since we're in tax season, we'll look over at the, one of the best tax men in the Bible. Luke 18, verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 14. And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not what our culture presents or what our world has come to know. The parable is an indictment. It's the perfect establishment of the elite limits of eternal salvation, of eternal life. It was used by Jesus to evangelize a self-righteous lawyer. Effective evangelism begins with the need and not the cure. Jesus took the man to the need He diagnosed his failure, a failure to see the righteous standard of God, a failure of humility because of this man's abounding pride and arrogance. What do you see? Do you see the righteous standard of God? Do you see the call to lavish love perfectly and justly delivering it continually? Do you see your failure? Do you see your greatest need? Don't let your mind fool you. Your mind will try to lie to you and tell you that you have been the Good Samaritan. Don't you remember when I performed CPR on that man? Don't you remember when I gave money to my brother and I helped him move? Don't you remember when I let my friend Borrow my car. I'm justified. I'm a good person. I've done good things. Your mind will try to tell you that these things are sufficient to justify you in the presence of God. That you have actually loved your neighbor and you'll miss the whole point if you believe your mind. 
Justification is not in your actions. It's through Christ. Love is not by human strength. It is from Christ. Eternal life is not by human will. It is the will of Christ. So what is the answer to the greatest question? How do I inherit eternal life? The answer is this. You let this story of the Good Samaritan convict your heart that you don't know and you don't follow God's righteous standard. You can't, and you've never been able to. And you feel the weight and the failure to love God and neighbor perfectly at all times. You feel the conviction of your own sin and guilt and your inability to love God and neighbor, and you cry out to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to think back. Earlier I gave you this quote. I gave you this mission statement of the Good Samaritan Awards. I want you to listen to it again. And think about this in light of what we just read. They said, our objective is a very simple one. We seek to shift publicity away from the negative news that sours the spirit and teaches people about the worst among us in favor of positive news capable of uplifting the spirit and inspiring the best from all of us. Can I tell you, Jesus' mission in telling this parable was exactly the opposite of the mission statement of this Good Samaritan organization. The mission of the parable is to crush the soul of the lawyer, to crush his pride, his arrogance, his self-righteousness, and to establish the incredibly high standard of the righteousness of God. Do you see the high standard of righteousness? Do you see, are they so clear, the elite limits of eternal salvation? Do you feel the great degree of separation that you have from it? Friend, if you do, listen to these words of Puritan John Trapp. He said this. This is so helpful to you. Please listen to these words. God puts away many in his anger for their supposed goodness, but not any at all for their confessed badness. I'm going to read it again to you. God puts away many in his anger for their supposed goodness, but not any at all for their confessed badness. What do you confess today? What are you able to meet of God's righteous standard? Are you the good Samaritan? Or do you fail? Are you filled with badness, with an impure heart and impure motives, pride and selfishness continually? Friend, if this is you, you must repent. The lawyer did not. And I implore you, you must repent. Repent and turn to Christ. Confess your failures to him. He is the great shepherd, and if you are his sheep, hear his voice and come to him. Find eternal life in him alone. That's the message of the Good Samaritan. Brokenness and humility before a righteous standard. Will you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we so desperately miss the mark. There is a call here in this passage to love like you. There is a call here to be a helper and to be a servant. But how can we meet the call if we aren't fixed inside, internally? You must perform a powerful work in me, in all of us. You must rid us of our selfishness, of our wickedness, of our inability to truly love our neighbor. We love ourselves so much 
And Lord, it is only through your power that you will crush our pride, our boastful and arrogant spirit of pride, and that you will put in a heart of flesh filled with the Holy Spirit that beats for you, that could actually give something of value back to you, which you so greatly deserve. Lord, thank you for this message and for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.